Hi, everyone. My name is Megan Kelly. I was adopted when I was four months old from Yueyang, China. I'm Chris Antizo Melifrani. I use he and they pronouns. I was adopted from Guatemala when I was six months old. Hi, my name is Eleanor Vasquez Kelly. I use she, her pronouns, and I was adopted from Guatemala when I was nine months old. today's show. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that there are so many different stories around adoption. One of the most dominant narratives in the U.S. is that when Americans adopt a child from another country, it's this beautiful creation of a new family. The parents are desperate for a kid, the kid might be leaving a war-torn or impoverished place, and together, everyone is better off. Today we'll be hearing from Megan, Chris, and Eleanor about how maybe it's not that simple, and maybe it's not that beautiful. Megan and Eleanor offered to tell their stories, and I'll let them start us off. I am a transracial international Chinese adoptee. When I use the term transracial here, what I mean to say is that I am someone of one race, I am Chinese, and my adoptive parents are white. I grew up in a predominantly white suburb in Connecticut, and I often thought about myself as white, even though I knew that I was adopted from China from a young age, or basically always knew I was adopted, but operated as though I, I, I was white for the better part of my childhood and, and adolescence. And I never really thought much about my adoption other than to consider it a fun fact um, about me and something that, you know, did not have a a lasting impact on my life beyond the the one singular date when my parents adopted me from China. Growing up, my mom always told me how loved I was. We had a really pretty house on a dead end with a huge green yard and a swimming pool. It was a really picture-perfect childhood in many ways, and my parents were, and still are, extremely supportive and loving, and were closer than any other family I know. When telling me about my adoption, My mom would tell me that I was so loved by a woman over 3,000 miles away that she gave me up for a better life. It was a really beautiful story of my parents catching the last flight out of Guatemala as a volcano erupted just a few miles away from the airport. And I really believed this story for most of my life, that I was so loved, that I was so blessed to have two moms, one who gave birth to me and decided she wanted me to have a better life, and one who raised me and gave me that life. As I got older, though, I started feeling like it must not have been love, but something else that made my birth mother give me up. I started believing wholeheartedly that she gave me up because she didn't want me and because she never wanted me. And I think that feeling really stuck with me most of my teenage years. Adoption is trauma, and adoption involves loss. Before I was adopted, I was abandoned. Um, I was relinquished by my biological family. I don't know the circumstances of that relinquishment, um, if it was intentional or not, um, but I was adopted as an infant, but my infant self knows that I was separated from my biological mother. And if we just think about what separation from a biological mother can mean at such a young, tender age, it's quite profound. And even if it's not something that I was able to cognitively, you know, know in the same way an adult cognitively knows things, As an infant, I still know that I was aware that I was not with that comfort of the biological family that I, I, um, you know, was born into. 
But that compared to the desire that my parents had to have kids and raise a family after so many pregnancy complications, it always really gave the idea that I was meant to be with them and my brother and I were meant to be their kids. My brother who was adopted from Peru and I, we both always knew that our family was different. The whiteness of our parents compared to our brown skin and dark hair made it really obvious to ourselves, to our teachers, to our friends and their parents that our family was not like theirs and it wasn't like the others in our small, very primarily white suburban town. My parents always just told us that we were so loved that we ended up in New Jersey because our birth mothers loved us so much that they wanted a better life for us. And that was always the key, that our lives were inherently better because we were adopted. There were so many instances of knowing I was different growing up, from my mother's friends explicitly telling me that I was so lucky to have been brought here, to a white woman in the grocery store coming up to touch and compliment my hair as my mother's back was turned in the dairy section. I remember in middle school when a teacher asked me in front of my entire class how I got my Irish last name, explaining that she had expected someone with blue eyes, freckles, and red hair. She asked me how. I said that my dad is Irish. While it was the truth, I know it confused everyone, and that was a major part of my experience growing up, confusing everyone when I walked around with my tall, white, blue-eyed dad, or when my brother and I showed up to a restaurant to meet the rest of our very white family. I wish I could say I got used to the stares or the looks on people's faces as they were trying to put two and two together to figure out how we were related, but those memories from growing up are all so vivid to me and it's like they happened yesterday and sometimes those things still happen. And I think that's what happens when you're a kid, that you're made so aware of your differences so publicly, especially when they're differences that you have no ability to change, they really stick with you and they really affect you in more ways than you can acknowledge when you're a kid. I grew up in a family that did not look like me and that, you know, was not able to identify with experiences of racism that I have experienced in my life. And I can go on and on about different aspects of adoption as trauma, but I just want to at least float the idea here that adoption is trauma. And coupled with that idea is that adoption involves loss. I lost my biological family in my adoption and also um, connection with birth culture, the Chinese culture, and... I can intellectualize a lot about adoption and loss and trauma, but I would say that at the end of the day, you know, this is a felt loss. It's a loss that is felt in my stomach when um, I come to realize that, oh, geez, wow, I, I really don't know anything about my ancestors, and I don't know really where I was born. The papers say one thing, but who knows where I was born, who knows what family I was born into, and who knows why I was given up. I also feel it certainly like a pain in my chest when I realized that I do not know how to um, speak Mandarin and it's difficult to reconcile the idea that often people say that by being adopted to the United States I've earned a lot and gained a lot but I've also want to say that I hold the tension of knowing that I have gained certain opportunities in coming to the United States but also I've lost a lot and even in the narrative about gaining things and coming to the United States I, I question sometimes how that's wrapped up in um, ideas of capitalism and colonialism. As a teenager, I dealt with depression and anxiety on and off throughout high school, and I could never understand why. My life could be going perfectly fine, but I always felt so out of place in my own feelings and sometimes in my own home. And so towards the end of high school, I started feeling like I really needed to know about my roots. So I decided to major in nutrition after learning about the malnutrition issue in Guatemala. And I felt like I could really help a country that I knew nothing about at the time. All these kinds of thoughts about my racial and adoptee identities changed when I got to college and I started meeting 
other adoptees, other transracial adoptees, and I started engaging um, in academic coursework about race and also started hearing the word person of color and started thinking about myself as a person of color. I got to a point in, in college when I came to say that I am an adoptee, as opposed to saying that I was adopted um, in the past tense. The the simple yet also a meaningful shift in the language there is that it became obvious to me that I was always going to be adopted, and I am an adoptee, and that, that adoption has a lasting impact on my life, and that it has become a salient part of who I am. During an internship in college, I mentioned to my supervisor that I felt so lucky to be adopted, that I had so much opportunity and such a good life that I wouldn't have had in Guatemala. She quickly corrected me. She was a very steadfast and smart sociologist from Ecuador, and she was the first person to really challenge that idea and explained that white saviorism and white supremacy and ethnocentric tones were all built into the narrative that I was kept repeating back to her that I had heard my entire life. This conversation really made me realize that I had no idea of what my home country was like and I was completely disconnected from any real understanding of what Guatemala was. That's when I started looking into Guatemala's history more and learning about the 40-year-long civil war and understanding the reasons why adoption became such a large industry in the country. In 2018, I learned about the child trafficking issues in the adoption system in Guatemala, and I asked my parents about it, about there being any possibility of my adoption being illegal. They were adamant about having gone through a reputable agency and making sure they did everything right and making sure that everything was legal. You know, only real like sign that I, I have of, of knowing that I was born to a different family is that I, I have different physical features than my adoptive family and that somehow that my biological family is reflected in my own reflection in the mirror. Like if that's the only connection I have, I have this great desire to, to try to find out who those people are. I, I don't think that the connection is completely lost, but it's certainly weakened given that I, I've never met them um, in my memory. I can't remember ever meeting them. And so I arrived at this point about two years ago, that I, actually a year ago, that I decided I wanted to search for biological family, um, partly to know myself better, partly to assure them that I am okay and that I'm alive. And to just kind of understand the, the place that I come from. It got to the point where I was thinking about Guatemala every single day. This place that I had treated like an imaginary friend my whole life, a far off country that I would never be able to really understand, that only seemed important to me and not to those around me. One night after an uncharacteristically heated argument with my parents, I drove to my friend's house and she made the suggestion of going to Guatemala, even just for a weekend. I was working, I had the money, and I knew enough Spanish to travel comfortably. This was the first time that I was really faced with the idea of actually going to this country that had been such an enigma in my life for so long. So we looked up flights and I made the decision to go over my Thanksgiving break. My first visit back was with an ex-boyfriend who was a very tall white man who did not speak any Spanish and helped mark us as American tourists. So I felt just as out of place there as I did in the whiteness of my town growing up. Unfortunately, that relationship wasn't very healthy, so I really regret having that mark on my experience going back to Guatemala for the first time. But I remember crying as soon as the plane landed, because I looked out the window and I saw a very old cement building, really decrepit and aging, and I wondered to myself whether that building was standing there the last time I was on that land, when I was taking off in the plane with my new parents on my way to my new home. I remember being amazed at how beautiful my country was how nobody told me about this beauty when telling me about how lucky I was to have gotten out of there. I remember feeling the sun beating down on my face, thinking to myself that it could not have been the same sun that I grew up shining on me in New Jersey. 
It felt like a whole new world had opened up to me. As I approached this journey about a year ago, I decided that I wanted to tell my adoptive family about my decision to search for biological family, and this decision to tell them was extremely difficult. There's no inherent need for me to tell my adoptive family about this decision, so I would not suggest that every adoptee needs to tell their, their adoptive parents um, their decision on this type of matter, um, or anything at all for that, but um, I have such a close relationship with my adoptive parents that in honoring the closeness of our relationship, I wanted to, to share with them my decision. But certainly make no mistake, it was um, hard to arrive at a point where I felt like I was confident enough to, and, and felt safe enough to tell my adoptive parents. I use the word safety here and, and talk about the difficulty of, of telling them because I think there's a lot of risk. I felt a lot of risk in telling them. Um, and that's not necessarily a reflection on my parents. It's a reflection, I think, on the whole way that we conceptualize adoption in society and um, different dynamics between adoptees and adoptive parents. So, for example, speaking to the idea I mentioned earlier about adoption being beautiful, by mentioning the presence of my biological family and by mentioning that I lost that connection or that I at least that connection with them has weakened as a result of adoption, that's not something necessarily pleasant to think about. It's certainly not, I don't think, the standard idea of beauty that people think about when they think about adoption as, as a creation of, of a happy family and you know, everyone lives happily ever after. And so by bringing up the idea of biological family searching, I am essentially rupturing this idea that adoption is beautiful. And also, for my parents, they love me to pieces and I also love them. And their love for me has meant that they've poured their heart and soul into raising me and... I feared that by bringing up the existence of my biological family and my desire to seek them out, that they would see that as an insult to their parenting, that they might get defensive about the life that they've provided for me and, and questioning themselves and perhaps even digging into their own insecurities over, are they good parents? And does my desire to search for biological family call that into question? Now, of course, I would argue it does not. I think this is my case, that it's possible to hold multiple truths and to say that I love my parents dearly and I want to search for a biological family but I think that for some that might be you know that might require some some cognitive gymnastics let's say and so I recognize that and the potential for my parents to not fully understand my desire to search for biological family and so I told my dad and um, he was very supportive he told me that he would also search for a biological family if he were in my position, and that was, of course, very affirming. Um, I expressed to him my hesitation to tell my adoptive mom, and he felt like she would be all right with the news, and I was a bit skeptical, but I had had enough conversations with my mom about the ways that adoption was traumatic and that adoption was lost that I felt like she and I were both at a place where we could hold a discussion about my decision to search for biological family. I told her, and to my partial surprise but more relief um she was extremely supportive as well and um she decided she or she told me that she was more than willing to help me with that search should i want her help and i appreciated that as well and i i was honestly proud of both of us for having reached a point in our relationship where she was secure enough in her own capacity as a mom to know that my request was not an insult to her and that also i felt confident enough to tell her this news just three days after getting my bachelor's degree, I was on my own boarding a one-way flight back to Guatemala with the goal of backpacking and finally becoming as fluent as possible in Spanish. After experiencing my first panic attack in the customs line at the Mexico City airport during my layover, 
and calling my mom in New Jersey 20 times and figuring out how to buy a SIM card, I finally met the taxi driver who would drive me to my hostel from the airport. He was actually the father of a fellow adoptee who I knew only because he was so outspoken about the trafficking involved in their case. I asked him about the process of finding birth parents and of the likelihood that my adoption was fraudulent. After telling him the story on the drive to Antigua, he told me he would be surprised if my adoption was fully legal. I remember my heart sinking, having only been in the country for an hour and already thinking about all the complications of my being there. It only took me four days from then to reach out to a searcher to see if I could find my birth family. I didn't go to Guatemala with the intention of doing a search, but every time I walked outside and through a crowd, I couldn't shake the feeling that my family was out there somewhere. I had no idea where except that they supposedly lived in the capital. On impulse, I messaged a man on Facebook who I had heard had done a few reunions of adoptees and their birth families. I met him the next day, a Wednesday, and I told him that all I wanted to know was the truth about my adoption. I just wanted to know if, if I was legally adopted or not, if what the papers said was true, and by Thursday, he verified the adoption paperwork. So on Friday, he met one of my sister-in-laws at their family home when he was trying to verify the address on my paperwork. By Saturday, I was sitting with him in the Central Park in Antigua eating ice cream when he told me that my siblings wanted to meet me the next day. Later that day, I hiked Volcan Pacaya, and I had the most dramatic moments of my life thinking about how quickly all of this happened and how I wasn't ready to know the truth. I met three of my nine siblings the next day. We met at a Taco Bell, and it was my first time ever eating there, so I definitely have a special place in my heart for it now, even though I get made fun of for loving it so much. One of my brothers kept staring at me and smiling until he told me that he felt like he was looking at a young version of our mom sitting across the table from him and it was really hard not to burst into tears. I don't remember much of that day besides the discomfort, actually, of how hard it was for me to process all that was happening in the moment. I know I felt safe, I felt like I was with family the instant I saw them, but I was so overwhelmed with every emotion I could barely speak. We said our goodbyes and made tentative plans to see each other soon. The next day, we planned for me to go to their home in Mexico to meet my mom on Valentine's Day. I don't remember the days leading up to meeting her, I just remember buying her roses early that morning after asking my older sister what her favorite flower was. I got out of the car and I walked through their gate into the room they pointed me to and she was there. Finally. My older brother was holding her and as she looked at me for the first time, she fainted in his arms. I felt like I had turned this family's life upside down. My birth mother had just fainted in front of me, and I was on my own in this country I knew nothing about. I wanted nothing more in that moment than to be at home in New Jersey with my parents. I was full of so much regret, but I couldn't run away, I couldn't go anywhere. So I sat on the bed, and I waited for her to wake up, and when she did, we finally got to sit together and to hold each other's hands for the first time in 21 years. I later learned that my siblings had wanted to meet me, only a few of them at first, to see if it was the real thing, to make sure that I wasn't trying to scam them. I'm the ninth born out of ten, and I'm the middle sister. Nobody except my eldest sister knew that I had existed. As we sat together, my searcher translating between languages and tears, I learned that I was a stolen child. None of my siblings knew about me, because the doctors told my mom that I was a stillbirth, she believed for my entire life that I was dead. At 21 years old, I came to them, alive and healthy, for us all to learn that our lives had been changed forever by a corrupt doctor at Roosevelt Hospital in Guatemala City. I had finally found out the truth. All those years on my birthday, wondering whether or not she thought of me, not knowing that she didn't think I was even alive the whole time. I don't think I've processed this information 
all even to this day. I wonder how are you supposed to mourn yourself and how do you start being a part of a family 21 years too late? At this point in my life, I am continuing to search, though slowly and steadily, because I know that this process can be can bring up pain and trauma for myself as I come to understand more about who I am and the, the narratives and stories that occurred in my life before I was adopted. And I'm also, you know, supported by my parents in this process and other friends and um, loved ones and that, you know, is of course extremely significant. Even my own apprehension about both doing the search and telling my parents about the search is extremely revealing of the ways that adoptee narratives are not always highlighted in our common conceptions of, of adoption and that there can be an erasure of the of the pain that adoption can cause and I hope to connect with adoptees who might be listening in, um, who might have felt this pain or can resonate with some aspects of my story, and to also give space for those adoptees who have never felt anything that I'm uh, expressing and to know that there's a diversity in feelings that adoptees have about adoption. I never got a chance to backpack because every weekend I spent with the family, learning more about their personalities, eating with them, learning the town that I would have grown up in. I felt like I had brought myself to Guatemala with a purpose I didn't know about until it was already done. I felt complete, even if I didn't have answers to my questions still. While our relationship is as good as it can be given the circumstances, I do still have to live with the fact that I was trafficked as a child. Adoption, no matter the details, is an industry. Families pay thousands of dollars to adopt a child, and even when they are as deliberate as possible, there is still a chance that they do not know all that there is to know about the situation. Finding out what truly happened in my own adoption has radicalized me, and I do not believe that international adoption should exist in any way, let alone in this way that allowed me to be ripped from my mother so violently. Last year, I ended up celebrating my birthday with them, and my parents flew down to Guatemala with me to meet them. A few months later, I went back to visit and celebrate Christmas and New Year's with them. At this point, I've gone back to Guatemala four times. Since the pandemic started, we've now gone the longest we have without seeing each other since being separated the first time. I talk to them regularly, I speak with them on the phone and text them every few weeks, I tell them how much I miss them, and they let me know that my nieces and nephews want to see me soon. It has been over 10 months and I can't wait to be able to get on a plane and safely see them and hug them and celebrate with them again. Hi everyone, this is Paul with the Divided Families podcast, and I think our longtime listeners must recognize at this point that this episode is unique in many ways. First of all, in the format, where most of our interviews have been one-on-one -on -one interviews and recorded conversations, uh, this one felt like really deserved uh, separate stories of personal lived experiences um, at the beginning. And then what you will now hear is a recording of a conversation between very, very special guests, including a close friend of mine, as uh, so it was a conversation with Eleanor Vasquez-Kelly, Megan Kelly, and Chris Santizo Malafranti, members of a collective of adoptees advocating for the abolition of the transracial international adoption system. So Eleanor, Megan, and Chris, Thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. I'm really excited. Really excited to be here, Paul. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. 
I agree. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was um, I I was listening to your story again. I think we were all just listening to uh, each other's stories, and I was just so struck by one how poignant and and different they were, but two how despite your differences and different backgrounds, you've come together for this common cause and then these shared values for this collective. And I think one term that Chris mentioned to me is this idea of being in the fog as an adoptee. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what it means to be in the fog and come out of the fog, because I think both Eleanor and Megan mentioned that this was a very transformative, even radicalizing experience. And does that have to do with what brought you to to work on this collective and, and to motivate you to advocate in this space? Yeah, I can start. Thanks, Paul, again, for, for having us on. So when I mentioned that coming out of the fog, I think that's like a, definitely a term that's often used in adoption circles, in particular for adoptees who, who maybe are a little more critical of the system as it stands. So for me, my sense of the term is that being in the fog is an adoptee who is particularly grateful for being adopted. It's not to say that anybody who, who is out of the fog did not have a, a wonderful childhood or great experience growing up as an adoptee. I can say for myself that I love my family. I, I have a great relationship with my parents. And yet there was a point in my life when I started to learn about race, different theories of racialization that I realized that I am not white. <laughs> I am not my parents' kid biologically. I am a person of color. I'm a brown man. And that kind of just like led me personally to like really think critically about all of these stories I had been told growing up that love was enough, that love could conquer everything. So I think there's like a caricature of who this adoptee is that's still in the fog. They are really happy to be adopted, grateful that they were adopted. They might really consider adopting someday. They maybe do service work in the country that they were adopted from. Their relationship to their country of birth is one that is still really kind of white savior-like. It's a little paternalistic in a lot of ways. And maybe the culture for them of their country of birth is a fun fact. It's something that they are really excited to share or show off when it maybe gives them a little social clout. And their difference or their otherness being adopted or being a person of color is a joke sometimes. It's something that is just a special little thing that makes them unique. And I think for us in this collective, the thread that kind of runs through all of our narratives and, and our intellectual development and our radicalization is that We've come to reject that adoption is a system that only benefits, is a system that we should be grateful for. On the contrary, I think that we really have come to the conclusion that adoption does a lot of harm and actually is a really traumatic experience for adoptees, for birth families, and leads to a lot of loss. I mean, I think it's very timely that we're having this conversation because November is National Adoption Month which is, I, I just looked this up and it's quote unquote, a special time to celebrate families that have grown through adoption. So it's very much, it seems like a very positive view on adoption. And also from some of the stories that we've heard on the podcast, for example, 
a recent episode with Carlos Ayer. He was uh, from Cuba and his parents actually sent him to the U.S. in foster care homes. He was actually saying that he was glad his parents sent him and they were separated. I, I feel like there are really different views of adoption. So uh, Megan or Eleanor, what is coming out of the fog and the system of transracial adoption have to do with bigger systems of oppression? I think that when you look at this system of international adoption, it's inevitable that you have to acknowledge colonialism and ethnocentrism, especially when you are coming to a country as nationalist as the United States. So I think it really does start to rock and completely unfold all of the ideologies that your childhood is built upon, not only in history classes where a lot of the history of the people of color in in the United States or indigenous populations, just all of the commonalities of histories being completely looked over. It also completely omits usually any of the history of the countries that a lot of adoptees are from. And so you really do begin to believe that the world is kind of focused around the United States. And I think that that's a really key thing to me is that I had to really break down that ideology and understand my place between focusing on the United States as I was conditioned and raised to, and then also understanding what the United States has done to my country of Guatemala and understanding the impacts and how it all ties together. Because it really does stem from colonialist actions taken by the United States in in the 1950s to Guatemala and having a direct impact in Guatemalan politics that caused a 40-year-long civil war. And through that resulted all of these adoptions out. So for me, it's easier to think about it specifically in the context of Guatemala, but it's not an uncommon situation that is what it comes from. Right. There's a pattern. There's inevitably some sort of third world country, a country that is maybe torn apart by war or by some social policies in that country that lead to the stigmatization of single motherhood. And oftentimes there's a movement of children going from these countries to richer, global northern, western, whiter countries, whether it's the United States, it's Canada, it's countries in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, you name it. When we we start to break down and look at where are these children coming from and where are they going, then we start to see, oh, there's like kind of an imperial, neo-colonial tinge to all of this. And I think that, like Eleanor was saying, with the history of Guatemala in particular, it's a clear case. U.S. intervenes in the 1950s, leads to a coup of a democratically elected government, then leads to a 36-year-long civil war, and then the resulting market for children coming out of that country that just really blossoms in the mid-90s and continues on until adoption from that country was actually shut down by international means. Megan, I know you mentioned in your story you had this transformative moment or this process, really, of changing your perception of adoption as something beautiful and about creating family to something that's much more nuanced and even maybe more insidious. So can you share a little bit more about that transformation? Yeah, of course, Paul. I don't know if there was like one choice moment when I 
started coming out of this fog of understanding that I there was more to adoption than just family creation. Purely being in an academic environment in college where I was learning about race was extremely important to me. I had quite literally only learned about race in terms of black and white when I was growing up. And so I never really saw myself reflected in stories of the 1950s and 60s civil rights movement. And I was growing up in a white suburban town in Connecticut, as I mentioned, I think the narrative there was that we were living in basically a post-racial society. So if I'm going from the point of knowing that, oh, I'm living in a post-racial society, then my race doesn't matter. I'm, I'm automatically kind of honorary white because of my proximity to living in a, in a white adoptive family. So when I started going um, and taking classes in college about race, it just it prompted me and I'm writing, you know, all these sociological analysis papers. And then it started to hit me that, oh, wow, I am implicated when we're talking about white privilege, white supremacy. And I've seen the ways that white privilege is exhibited in my own family. And even if my parents do not intentionally think the following, I think that there is a certain level where I knew that I was adopted from China. And one of the things that motivated a lot of families at the time to adopt from China were, you know, news reports about quote unquote, dying rooms in orphanages in China, where you had a lot of infants basically passing away because of lack of proper care. And my parents thought that they would go to China. Again, they don't necessarily use this word, but to kind of save a kid, save myself or other people who are in these orphanages. And upon realizing that that one instance of my parents going to China is part of something much larger, it's part of patterns that we see that Chris and Eleanor were talking about, whether it be you know US intervention in Guatemala and other Latin American countries, or these other instances of white supremacy and of white saviorism that I was like, oh, wow, like this is huge. And so by me critiquing adoption, I'm critiquing, yes, what happened to me, but also something that continues to happen to thousands of kids every year. And I will give a shout out to Chris. Chris and I went to college together and I had the fortune of being able to share some of my thoughts with Chris. And I think together we were, we were able to grow. And I think that was also really helpful for me. Chris, I think is the only person I know a summer camp who would read academic journal papers this in his spare time. <laughs> exactly. So I could definitely see Chris uh, doing that. But anyways, back to the conversation. One more thing that I'm curious about is this concept of reunion or reconnection with birth parents or your birth family, because this is something that we talk a lot about on this podcast, the opposite of division and separation and maybe the solution might be a reunion and then it's happily ever after and it's closure. But we've heard, for example, from Eleanor's story, literally your birth mother fainted when you were meeting and it's much more nuanced than that. So, you know, what does reconnecting and reunion with birth parents and birth family look like in your instance? And how does that play into this broader system of transracial international adoption that you're trying to break down and reform? Yeah, I actually really love this question. I think it's a really important aspect of the adoptee experience. And I know that growing up, I was asked all the time whether or not I knew my biological parents or if I had ever gone to Guatemala after disclosing to whoever I was talking to that I was adopted. And that is really a sensitive question, but I think people who aren't familiar with the adoptee community just kind of feel like they have a right to know. 
you know, whether or not you have met your birth parents and what it was like, as though it isn't some second trauma to being adopted and a whole experience in and of itself. My case was as straightforward as it could have been given the circumstances, because I do know of cases where the paperwork is really just incorrect and a search is a much harder endeavor. So I am really glad that I was capable of doing it within the time frame that I was. But at the same time, I don't think I could ever have been prepared for how emotionally trying it was, especially in such a short span of time. And especially after hearing the truth about the circumstances surrounding the adoption. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that having a reunion with your biological family is not always easy and it's not always happily ever after. And it really does add a million more layers of complications in your life. Even through this pandemic, at the onset of it, I was on the phone with my birth family constantly trying to see how we could help and how I could understand better the situation there to understand how at risk they were. And so it really does add on this new world of anxieties for me personally and having to worry about a whole nother family and also having a responsibility to this other family in a lot of ways and knowing that the first time that I can get on a plane, it probably will be to see them. And it does feel like a burden sometimes, (laughs) like a burden that I never asked for to have to deal with the dynamics and the intricacies of balancing two relationships. And it is really special to have two families and to to be able to connect with them and to be able to speak with them regularly. But I do think it does need more acknowledgement as a really, really hard secondary part of the adoptee experience if an adoptee does choose to go through the process of reuniting and finding their birth family. It's a very arduous process and it's very emotionally exhausting. And it's something that (laughs) I, I would never call it easy, but I would say that it has 100% been worth it. One thing that adoptees aren't necessarily prepared for is the reality that you're going to be meeting strangers, whether or not they are your biological family. These are people that you have not spent time with. In my experience, going back and finding my family, it was extremely dissonant. And I think that dissonance was the major point of exhaustion. I wanted to, I wanted to have a relationship with my family, my birth mom and with my brother. And when I was there, I just was realizing how big of a gap we had linguistically, culturally, and with my mother, just kind of generationally. And despite me spending the last five years studying adoption, it still was a surprise to me. It's this like deep longing to be a part of that family. We have a whole chapter of our life ahead of us that we could spend together, or at least like getting to know each other. My brother is like three or four years older than me. And what's been most hard for me is just understanding what it means to be a brother, what it means to show up as a son. I don't know how to be a son to my mother, who I don't have a relationship with. I don't know how to be a brother to my brother, who grew up in Guatemala and speaks Spanish and has all the cultural touchstones of what it means to be a millennial who grew up in Guatemala. I just don't have that. It's extremely heartbreaking, and it doesn't mean that I don't want to try. And it doesn't mean that I'm not working constantly to get better at Spanish and to get back to Guatemala so that I can spend time with them. But I think spending time with them it can be very isolating. And I'm kind of just caught in this like 
well, I kind of can speak Spanish enough, but I don't understand all your slang and missing different jokes and cultural things because I didn't grow up here. It can be lonely at times. The idea when you're adopted and you're growing up is that, oh, I'm going to find my birth family someday and then I won't be so alone in this situation. And in my experience, I continued to experience that feeling. It just, the tone of it changed a little bit. And I think that's part of what's on the other side of reuniting. You'll never not be an adoptee. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to ask Megan, actually, I did some internet sleuthing and it seems like, you know, you were studying Spanish for a while and I'm assuming fluent in Spanish after being in Spain from what I read. But I know in your story, you mentioned this sense of disappointment or maybe a sense of yearning to be in touch with your heritage and your culture of your birth, including Mandarin and Chinese culture. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how that relates to what you're trying to do with the collective as well. You are correct that I um, did study Spanish and I don't call myself fluent, but I have an advanced level of Spanish. And to be honest, it's really sad for me that I know more Spanish, that my, my level of Spanish knowledge is higher than my level of Mandarin has ever been. Only recently did I actually remember that when I was in middle school, I decided, you know, I was going to study Mandarin because there was a program offered at my school to do so. And I was really excited and I decided to study it. And my childhood best friend who happened to be white said to me, why are you studying Mandarin? That That's worthless. Spanish is much more valuable. I didn't even know what to say. I, I, I kind of proudly remember, I, I do think I said to her something like, Mandarin is the most widely spoken language in the world. And then her comeback to that was, well, duh, there's so many people in China, outside of China, no one speaks it. And that is just so heartbreaking. From a, a best friend who I look to for support, to really just devalue and invalidate my own cultural identity and therefore invalidating me and not really seeing me for who I am. And so I think that that was like been a recurring narrative in my childhood, even in ways that I don't, you know, perhaps remember. I'm wondering if we can transition a bit to what this all means now and what you're all advocating for because i know one of your goals what you're envisioning is the abolition of transracial international system of adoption can you help me and and listeners understand you know what exactly you mean by this and what would a better system or a new system look like so what i think each of us has come together to work towards is a system that prioritizes keeping families together. We've mentioned money once earlier in, in I think, Eleanor's story. There's thousands and thousands of dollars that are getting funneled into this system. What would it look like to take that twenty to $45,000 that is being put to towards these adoptions and instead investing in sustainable systems in these countries, a place for a birth mother to leave their child for two or three months while they get on their feet. What if that money could go towards different facilities or directly to families in order to support them? In Guatemala, $30,000 USD is a ridiculous amount of money. And when I was adopted and Eleanor was adopted, that was being funneled into a black market. And that's kind of just like what we see in every country where international adoption moves to. There's this obscene amount of money that's coming into the country, and then there's a couple of lawyers or a couple of doctors or a couple of nurses, a couple of social workers who realize how much money they could be making if they just got into the trafficking business. 
And it inevitably happens in every country. When we say abolition, we're thinking about these systems. We have to hold all of it, the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly, the very, very ugly. I would love to add on to that too, just because Chris got me thinking about this organization I know that actually does work to, their work does fall within those lines of keeping families together. There was a community in Honduras that was experiencing really overflowing orphanages. And so a nonprofit came in and they're doing this at a very micro level, but they came in and they created a system that did allow for what Chris was saying, which gave the youth in that town a home and education system for however long their parents needed them to be able to be taken care of while they get back on their feet and are able to be self-sufficient economically. And the rate of child abandonment in that area of Honduras completely diminished. It was negligible, if not zero completely. So we're talking about restructuring systems entirely and imagining it in a whole new perspective. I think the only thing that I would add, I love Eleanor and Chris, all of your ideas and points, is that when I think about adoption and the fact that adoption exists, I often think about it as a symptom of much larger social problems, which is to say, what would motivate the separation of a child from their biological family? And often that is poverty, the inability for the the biological family to care for their child. And sometimes it's not poverty, but also shame and social stigma of, as Chris mentioned earlier, of single mothers. And of course, then you have this framework that we have already entered into of the ways that adoption becomes a market, becomes a, a supply and demand model. There's perverse incentives for trafficking to happen in ways that mean infants are stolen. So I think because families often want to adopt and maybe they, they don't want to see the negative sides of adoption, even if they don't realize that they don't want to see that, then it means that there's no incentive for families to start looking into like what's behind adoption, what's underlying adoption. But I think we need to start looking at that in order to then abolish the system because it's kind of like a root cause analysis, essentially, at the end of the day. Because this system that you're talking about is so deep-rooted and dismantling it, it seems to me like it will take a long time to unravel because it is so insidious in many ways and deep-rooted. But I'm wondering what are some concrete things maybe some goals that could be done in the short term, whether it's legislation on a political level or changing the narrative and the image of international transracial adoption on social media or, or advertising, because there's so many factors to this, as you all have said, there's economic, ideological, and religious even. What are some short-term goals? And do you think that ties in at all with solidarity and partnership with other communities? I think when we talk about abolishing systems, we do also have to talk about the fact that that end goal needs incremental steps. And for me personally, I think it's really important to just have conversations with fellow adoptees and with adoptive parents and really try and bring them out of this fog that we call it and get more critical understanding of what the system of adoption is before we can tackle changing it and abolishing it. It really does entail a lot of hard conversations. To jump off of something Chris was alluding to earlier, I think that any action that is taken to 
abolish the system of international transracial adoption must be led by adoptees themselves who are internationally transracially adopted. And also keeping in mind the views and opinions of biological families as well, because I think that if we're thinking about the key stakeholders and actors in international transracial adoption system, what we have, and there are many others that are you know, adoptive families, adoptive parents specifically, the adoptee, the biological families, and also in this in the United States, agencies that hold a lot of clout in terms of facilitating adoptions for parents and make profit off of adoptions. And then, of course, the laws and different lawmakers and domestic and foreign policies that relate to adoption. But ultimately, I think it's important that we always center the people who are most directly affected by adoption. And I would argue that that's the adoptee, especially because none of us, like Chris, myself and Eleanor, none of us chose adoption. We were far too young to be choosing adoption. And so, at least for me, knowing that my sense of agency was taken from me as an infant makes it even more imperative that as a, an adoptee who is now an adult, that my agency is recognized in my ability to speak out about these issues and to be an expert in my own lived experience. Who better else to lead a movement to abolish the system of adoption than the adoptees themselves? And I think it's important for parents and others to know that adoptees now are coming of age and adoptees grow up. I think there's this idea that the adopted child is always this kind of perpetual child, second to a parent. And really, we're free-thinking, free-will-like people. And speaking to something you said, Paul, the idea of international transracial adoption is so intertwined with movements for racial justice or for um, immigration rights and to just recognize how do we treat people? Like, who do we consider to be human beings and how do we treat them? Because the children who are adopted in international adoption are human beings at the end of the day. And sometimes I feel like we're seen as commodities. And so how do we flip that script too? Just the final note of what we ask everyone as we close this conversation on the podcast, what can listeners do to either support, help, be an ally, or educate themselves even about your cause. And I, I think feel like myself, I feel a bit hesitant to feel like I'm prying or even broach the subject of birth families or adoption, even with some of my friends who are adoptees. So I imagine others might feel similarly. So I don't know about engaging in conversation and learning about their stories in that way. So I'm just wondering if you feel like there are other ways or, or what are some uh, of the most effective ways to help support this cause? I think to start, go and follow No White Saviors on all social media platforms. They're just a phenomenal organization that seeks to just like decloud some of the white saviorist narratives that are around adoption and around a lot of other stuff, but adoption is in there. I think another way that to maybe tangentially support is to educate yourself on the Adoptee Citizenship Act, which is this law that's being introduced in our government to make it so that any adoptee who was adopted before, I think it's 2001 when the law was introduced. So prior to 2001, you could be adopted and not, not automatically become a citizen. So there are a number of adoptees who didn't go through a naturalization process who are now either at risk of being deported or already have been deported because of that. And this is maybe another way that we see adoption intersecting with immigration rights. So you can follow an account called Adoptees for Justice. They talk about that a lot. I'm not sure if there's one perfect resource to point people to. I think adoption does touch a lot of lives. And so if there is an adoptee in your life, I think 
it's okay to be just really intentional and say, hey, like I, I listened to this podcast and I learned a little bit about adoption. I've never asked you, what was your adoption story? How do you feel about it? And I think coming at it from like a genuine way where you want to have a conversation about it instead of it being like a, a fun fact for the first 30 seconds you're getting to know somebody. I think those are really different ways of approaching, trying to understand these experiences. I think oftentimes it's like, a one-off question. And, oh, you're adopted? Oh, have you been back? Oh, have you found your birth family? What was that like? And that's where the conversation ends. You know, and it wasn't actually about trying to understand that experience. It was really about satisfying somebody's curiosity. So that's a little bit of advice I'd have to that one point. I guess this is kind of blunt. And so I'm not usually a blunt person. So like, we'll see how this goes on air. But I would say that one thing that folks can do is just if you or someone you know is thinking about adopting internationally and transracially, is to really like just not do it, honestly. That would be like my, my advice. And coupled with that is that I recognize a lot of the ideas that we all brought up today are new to folks and they could take time to process. And I, I want to honor that processing time and to maybe just sit with them and, and to really consider like what are the implications that they have over one's decision to adopt and why might it not be a good idea to adopt internationally, transracially, and then again, like to just not do it. And if you know friends who might be thinking about it, to have a really difficult conversation with them about it and even pointing them to this episode um, as a way to frame their their thinking on, on the issue. Yeah, I would just reiterate what both of them just said, but also to give an extra emphasis on Megan's point. I would hope that after hearing about at least our two experiences, that it would be a really big act to discourage international adoption or if you know anybody who's thinking about it or had consider it. Yeah, thank you so much, Eleanor, Megan, Chris. I think my mind is still trying to get over the fact that so many adoptees remain without citizenship or green cards in the US. I, I guess just leave it to our government um, to not have addressed that. Um, but I just really, really appreciate all three of your vulnerability, your initiative. Thank you so much. And really looking forward to tuning into your podcast when it comes out and collabing in that way. So we'll stay tuned for more. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, please follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe wherever you prefer to listen. Thanks to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music. We'll see you next week for a recap.